0: Hi, thanks for joining us at Seen and Unseen Aloud. This is where you get to listen to a curated collection of the editor's top picks of our recent articles. For when you need to be eyes-free or hands-free but still want to discover the seen and unseen. Taylor's Truth. How Superstar Authenticity Appeals by nathan betts if you've been paying attention any attention to taylor swift's most recent tour you will know why the last several months have been termed the summer of taylor swift the artist has traveled across america boosting economies en route and filling stadiums with contagious happiness i hadn't realized the enormous impact swift had made on entire cities until I was walking downtown Seattle earlier this summer for a Mariners baseball game. While walking from my car to the stadium, I encountered an endless sea of Taylor Swift fans waiting outside the stadium in the early afternoon for her show that would begin that evening. I had heard about Taylor Swift before, had listened to her music, but seeing what I saw that day told me something more profound about her and something about us as human beings. In recent history, we have seen different artists such as the Rolling Stones and ACDC elicit strange and frankly awkward adulation where people throw their clothes under the stage. U2 concerts have been hailed as a religious experience in which stadiums become cathedrals and more recently Justin Bieber gave many Bieber fever but what I saw on the downtown streets of Seattle leading up to Taylor Swift's concert was different. I've been trying to pinpoint what it was exactly that struck me that day. People of all ages packed into surrounding streets in Taylor Swift attire. Countless groups lustily singing her songs, cars and vans marked up with Taylor Swift song lyrics. There was a unity, a togetherness, and distinct humanity to it all. The feeling was more akin to a spiritual revival than merely a big stadium concert rolling into town. I remember coming back home that evening and texting friends to see what they made of it. My question was, what is it about Taylor Swift that has enabled her to connect with so many? The answers I received all struck the same notes. A Taylor Swift concert was the best they had ever experienced. But more than the concert, it's the vibe, the pure joy and happiness that you experience with everyone at the concert. There's something about her that makes people feel happy. And although she is a stratospheric star, she has deliberately made a point of seeming like the girl next door. People think and feel that she is their friend. She is relatable. If you were a Taylor Swift fan, you already know this, but as these thoughts about Taylor Swift rumbled through my brain for weeks after that experience, they took on a greater meaning during a lunch meeting I had with a friend back from college for the summer. Midway through our time together, he asked, How do you deal with people who are fake? The pensive look on my face revealed that I wasn't exactly sure what he was asking, so he sharpened the question How do you deal with people who are hypocrites? I now understood what he was getting at. He gave a few examples of friends and leaders around him who had acted in hypocritical ways. He saw through it. Although he had moved on from those relationships, the jagged edges of hypocrisy still dug into him. They hurt. My friend was asking me how, or if it's even possible, to trust in people who let you down. The truth is, I've lost count of the conversations I've had with people who have asked or expressed the same question. And yet, when my friend asked me this question, I wasn't sure what to say. I offered just one thought. What if the antidote to hypocrisy is the real thing? As in, what if the medicine for the disingenuous and fake is seeing a life that is genuine and real? A person who is true honest, who lives a life of integrity. This is where my mind came back to Taylor Swift and why it is that millions of us feel a real connection with her. The answer is nuanced, to be sure, but I wonder if part of it has to do with the fact that when we see or hear Taylor Swift, we experience a person who comes across as real, perhaps more than in recent memory, we as a society have a low tolerance for BS, yet despite our abhorrence for the fake, our attraction to the real and authentic has grown just as strongly. Enter Taylor Swift. Among other qualities, Swift is not a fake. Isabel Jones, a cradle Swiftie, recently explained this to me. Taylor Swift isn't fake because we've known her since she was 14. She gave all of herself to us. In her songs, in her interactions with fans, sending her coat to a fan who loved it during the Red era, Swift would have been 22-ish. She's one of the first Tumblr gen artists who consistently connected with fans and grown up with them, proving her consistency. We can relate to the words in Swift's songs. Her lyrics of sadness, anger, hope and grace connect with us. She touches the human spirit, not necessarily because we've been through the exact same kind of struggles, but because we are all human beings trying to figure out how to cope with hard things in life, own up to our shadows and weaknesses, and still engage our journey in life. And in Taylor Swift, we found a companion who knows the struggle of life and invites us to join her. In our age of loneliness and disintegrating relational bonds, I believe the message of Taylor Swift transcends her concerts and songs. She carries a message for us, a reminder of what we need as human beings. Truth, integrity, authenticity. We don't necessarily expect people to be perfect, but we need an honesty in our relationships about who people really are, whether that is the good or the bad. Just please, whatever you do, don't be a hypocrite. Wounds from hypocrisy can be hard to recover from. As a person of faith, I have experienced firsthand and have heard myriad stories of hypocrisy in the church. There is indeed much to be disheartened by in our world, and far too often within church walls. But in my more sober-minded moments, when I'm looking for lasting and healing solutions, I encounter a balm for my pain when I focus on the core and centre of the Christian faith. At its heart, Christianity goes beyond offering merely propositional prescriptions for the pain that paralyses us. Instead, hope is offered supremely in and through the person of Jesus Christ. God in flesh. Within Christ is a truth that rolls throughout the whole of sacred scripture. It is the beautiful message that there is a God who can be trusted. We can trust him because he is real. He lived in our world of pain and hypocrisy and he conquered its power. We might carry scars for the rest of our lives, but Christ's life tells us that there will come a point before we die or after when he will heal the deepest of our wounds. He can be trusted, not because he makes everything in life work out the way we want it to, or because we will never experience pain, but because in Christ we've found the one who knows the way through it. There's also a challenge here for those who follow Christ, and it is simply to reflect his character of truth, love and beauty in how we live, thereby opening up a world into which people actually want to inhabit. Recovering from being hurt by hypocrisy can be a long and hard road to travel. A recent conversation with a friend reminded me of how difficult that is, while my experience of Seattle bubbling with Taylor Swift happiness provided a signpost of hope. And behind all of this... I am made to wonder more than I can ever recall whether faith in Jesus Christ can help steer us in the right direction if we are willing to engage who he was and the life into which he invites us. Faith in Beethoven by Daniel K. L. Chua Bach's theological credentials are impeccable, as Jeremy Begbie wrote about previously for Seen and Unseen. But Beethoven's? Not really. In fact, not at all. Most scholars on Beethoven see him as a secularising force. If Bach represents the summit of theological expression in Western music history, then Beethoven is the poster boy of the Enlightenment progress he spells the end of sacred music. In the narrative of music history, Beethoven is the catalyst for a new secular epoch. After Beethoven, music is no longer about God, but humanity. Sacred music drops out from the historical narrative as something irrelevant or even regressive to the progress of modernity. But it is not just any Beethoven who wields this secularising power. It is a very particular Beethoven, more myth than man. This is the Beethoven as Promethean hero. He overcomes his deafness by defiance, grabbing fate by the throat as it knocks loudly in the opening bars of the Fifth Symphony, da-da-da-da, and triumphing, over its C minor threat in a glorious blaze of C major in the finale. The symphony is a musical model of human self-determination. It projects Beethoven as a revolutionary artist living in revolutionary times, channeling the anti-clerical and anti-monarchist fervour in the French Revolution in musical form. His story is one of freedom and autonomy and his music is made in his image, free from servitude to church and court and free to be itself. The Promethean image precludes Beethoven from being a sacred composer. It is not that he isn't a sacred composer, rather that he can't be one in this historical narrative. In fact, Beethoven stands as a rival to the sacred because by the beginning of the 20th century, artists such as Max Klinger were building shrines to the composer. Beethoven is the high priest of an art religion. The Vienna Secession's 14th exhibition in 1902 was a shrine dedicated to Beethoven, with Max Klinger's monument as the altar. But there is a problem. Beethoven wrote sacred music, Not much, admittedly, but enough, including what he declared to be his greatest work, the Messa Solemnis. So, in order to uphold a more secular Beethoven, scholars have had to explain away his sacred music as inconsequential and his religious beliefs as unorthodox or non-existent. They tie themselves up in knots trying to solve the problem, especially with regard to Beethoven's magnum opus, Although there is nothing theologically unorthodox in the Missa Solemnis, somehow the Mass has to be theologically unorthodox for these commentators. At best, it is a Mass for deist, but it is mostly a Mass about humanity. The liturgical bits can be dismissed, they claim, as something that stifles what is truly Beethovenian. Instead, to grasp its meaning, you have to listen to the Mass as if it were a symphony resonant with tones of human freedom and autonomy. It is almost as if Beethoven wrote the Mass against his will. In one recent biography, the chapter on the Missus Solemnis opens with the incredulous question, why did Beethoven write a Mass? Why not? The problem is not Beethoven's, obviously, but the biographer's belief in a history that sits uncomfortably with the composer. Yes, Beethoven was a revolutionary in the times of revolution. Yes, he was born in the Age of Enlightenment, and even declared freedom and progress as the main purpose of art. But that does not make him French. He did not step foot in France, and despite the Napoleonic aftermath of the French Revolution, what Enlightenment meant in Bonn, where Beethoven was born, and in Vienna, where he died, could not be anti-clerical or anti-monarchist because these cities were under the rule of enlightened despots who, by definition, had both kingly and ecclesiastical functions. In other words, Beethoven was a child of a religious enlightenment. This means that his innovative and radical works were not composed against the sacred but were inspired by it. This is not to say that there is no truth in a Promethean view of Beethoven, or that there is no conflict in his music during this tumultuous period in Europe. But it does imply that Beethoven upheld sacred music. In fact, he leads it in a new direction. And if we have ears to hear, then the Missa Solemnis can open up a new sound world full of theological resonance. While working on the Missa, Beethoven wrote out the Latin text of the Mass on a piece of paper and added a German translation next to each line. As a teenager, Beethoven regularly played the organ for Mass in the court at Bonn. He knew the Catholic liturgy from memory. So why would he write out the text and its translation? Because he wanted to explore the meaning of each word more fully, looking up a German dictionary for definitions and synonyms that would enlarge his understanding of the text. And if the expression, Mark, in the score of the Missa, with devotion, and his collection of devotional literature in his library is anything to go by, this process was an act of meditation for the composer. This was no routine setting of the Mass. In fact, if you listen carefully... Not only did Beethoven look up individual words to amplify their meaning, it seems that he also looked up the biblical reference to set their meaning in context. Listen to the Sanctus. You will hear echoes of the biblical book of Isaiah, chapter 6. Beethoven conjures up a temple trembling at its foundations as the angels sing, holy, holy, holy. Similarly, In the Benedictus, you will hear echoes of the Palm Sunday procession from the Gospels. This music is a match in the form of a pastoral. It depicts Jesus arriving as a king, but in the form of a humble shepherd riding a donkey, as the crowds chant, Blessed is he who comes in the name of the Lord. There is no sense of Promethean triumph here, but the sound of meekness and majesty. We don't need to tie ourselves up in knots to understand Beethoven or the Missus Solemnis as secular. Maybe, to use the composer's own words, Beethoven was just an ordinary Catholic writing extraordinary music to instill religious affections in the congregants. This view would be a more faithful account of the composer's life, but it would also radically change the way we understand Beethoven and the subsequent progress of music history in our textbooks. And this, perhaps, points to the most critical function of sacred music, to reveal the hearts of its hearers. The Missa Solemnis, as Beethoven's greatest work, is a capstone which may have rejected as the cornerstone of his age. Try not to trip on it. Meaning of Meals by Matthew Kroesman. This summer's Serpentine Pavilion in Hyde Park, a table, designed by Lebanese architect Lina Gauthme, invites us to the table. The extraordinary long tables ringing the pavilion invite us to a meal and to conversation, to connect with one another and with the earth that sustains our lives. Gautmer's invitation is an important one, if we have ears to hear. Through seeing what meals are, what they ought to be, and what they invite us to imagine, we discover what we are and what we ought to hope for. Meals help us understand what we are. We can sometimes rush past questions about materiality. Attending to meals won't allow us to do that. Food, after all is fundamental to life. We are what we eat and drink. Early in the biblical stories of the life of Jesus, Jesus is confronted with this fact of human life. Hungry after 40 days of fasting in the desert, Satan suggests Jesus miraculously produce some food for himself out of the rocks at hand. His response, a quotation from Hebrew scripture, The human does not live by bread alone might at first seem like a hyper-spiritual attempt to deny our bodily dependence on food. But I take it that Jesus isn't proposing that the human live without bread. He's asking us to take a closer look at bread to see that it is more than merely bread. What he invites us to see will yet affirm that we are profoundly interdependent with the natural world of which we are a part. Our hunger, and the food that satisfies it, is one of the most visceral reminders of just this fact. Food, however, is more than merely food. Food is a nexus of relationship. The rest of the verse Jesus cites goes on to insist that food comes by the word that comes from the mouth of the Lord. Even as we live by bread, we live by divine words, because the bread we eat, the bread we are comes to us as a divine gift. In the biblical imagination, everything comes from God. In the beginning, God spoke and there was. That's true of the wheat and rye and barley or whatever else we use to make our bread. And it is also true of the human cultures and traditions through which these natural goods come to be bread. Bread is more than merely bread. It is a divine gift. In fact, it turns out that every good thing is like bread in this way. Created things are most themselves when they are more than merely themselves. This is just the sort of thing the creation is. It is an interrelated, connected whole, marked by relationship within and without. Created things are most themselves in right relationship to one another and to the God who created them. As a created good, food is more than just food. And of course, meals are more than just food. Meals are sites of relationship, particularly in our globalised world. Our simple tables often conspire to hide fantastically complex networks of relationship implicated upon them. These networks interweave relationships among people and places, seen and unseen. The people implicated at our table include those around the table, those who foraged for, grew, transported and prepared the food, those whose cultures for generations cultivated the plants, animals, fungi, dairy products and all the rest that find their places at our table, those whose histories and cultures gave rise through creativity, necessity or both to the cuisines that weave together these natural and cultivated elements and those absent from our tables, who yet hunger for food. The places implicated include the fields and wilds and rivers and seas whence the food itself comes, the lands whence the cuisines and cultures hail, and the places we occupy as we share the table. So meals are more than just food, but then meals most worthy of the name are more than just meals. Meals are not just sites of any old relationship. At their best, they are sites of nourishing mutual encounter between people, places and the God who created them all. To desire a good meal is to seek to attend to the many relationships at our tables and to pursue nourishing mutuality. To seek the good of the wilds and streams from which our food has come to seek a way of relating to these places such that those relationships are mutually nourishing to seek the good of the people seen and unseen but nevertheless present inasmuch as they are implicated at our tables at times a good meal in this broken world will take the form of fasting in solidarity with or materially for the sake of those who hunger for what we so readily waste in attending to our interrelatedness with the people and the places God has created, we begin to understand what it is also to attend to our relatedness to God at the table. Each of us, human, plant, animal, field, river, sea, we become most what we are when we become more than just ourselves. We become most ourselves when we attend to our relatedness to one another when we attend to the God who created us for mutual flourishing. It is in these complex webs of interrelationship that what we are begins to suggest to us who we are. We are sharers of God's home, members of God's family, citizens, as Jesus put it, of God's kingdom. The kingdom of God is just this. All things flourishing in right relationship with one another and with God their Creator. One of Jesus' favourite metaphors for the kingdom was that of a heavenly banquet. Seated at God's table, our citizenship, our kinship, our mutual interdependence is plain. And yet we are not all flourishing. When I visited last year's Serpentine Pavilion, Hyde Park was bleached from drought and heat. The would-be lawns felt like deserted wastelands. It was disorienting. Such sights testify to our profound interrelatedness, though against our flourishing. On the Black Sea, wheat that may never become bread, because it is trapped by war, offers an analogous testimony Our lives are deeply entwined, just so we are not flourishing. In days like ours, our tables are sites of mutual encounter, but the encounter is not nourishing to all involved. If all Jesus offered were a vision of the table as it could be, as it should be, our reflection would have to end there. Look at what our meals might be, we might say. Let us make them so. Let us build the kingdom of God. War and climate catastrophe beware. But Jesus never instructed his followers to build the kingdom. Rather, he invited them to receive it, and in so doing, participate in its coming. One of Jesus' most common ways of inviting people to receive the kingdom was by inviting them to a meal. These were meals in our ordinary senses. They were sites of relationship, particularly, as Luke, one of the four gospel writers, tells it, Jesus was constantly offering advice about who to invite to the table. He warned about which absences revealed life-denying alienation. He convened and commended gatherings of rich and poor, religious and irreligious, nevertheless gathered for nourishing mutual encounter. These meals are not only revolutionary social projects, though they were and can still be exactly that. In the ministry of Jesus, meals become announcements and enactments of the kingdom of God. Meals become invitations to and demonstrations of the ultimate home that God is making for God and God's creation to flourish together. It is this home that Jesus invites us to inhabit with him. When we share meals that are more than mere meals, when we allow God to transform our relationships with one another and within the natural world, our meals too can become sites of transforming presence, the home of God coming to be among mortals. So when we come to the table, whether Goatman's table or the table in our homes, Let's be aware of the opportunity presented to us. At the table, we are invited to know bread that is more than mere bread, even as we are more than merely ourselves. At the table, we are invited into mutually nourishing encounter with one another, with the natural world, and with the God who created it all. At the table, we are invited to be at home with one another in the presence of God in whom all things are finding their home. Thank you for listening. Remember to subscribe to this podcast to get more curated articles from seen and unseen aloud. We hope you discover a world that is greater, more full of meaning and sense than you ever imagined.